I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 John. Now, this is not a hard one to find because it's uh, two books before the end of the Bible. So if you go to the book of Revelation and then back up two books, you'll be in the right location. Okay, we're going to do the entire book because the book is very brief. Okay, it's 13 verses. And we're going to focus our attention on verse 12 and kind of, I'm not going to give it a, a, a deep explanation of the entire book. My main focus is going to be on verse 12 uh, and how this text jumped out to me a few months ago in our men's study. And I just want to talk to us this morning as a church family about our life together and uh, kind of wrestle through this uh, dynamic of what it is to be the body of Christ, the family of God, the church, uh, all the glorious things that God has called us to be. And so a few years ago, uh, this goes back quite a ways, uh, we were having a discussion amongst leadership within the church about what we should be about. Uh, we know that we ought to be about seeing people come to Christ, seeing them become like Christ, okay? We know that evangelism and growth in Christ-likeness is clearly what we are called to do. That's the end game uh, that we as a church are called to. Every church is called to that. And the question becomes, how in each local context will that be worked out? Okay, what will that look like uh, in one setting as compared to another setting? And one of the, the, the ways that we started to formulate talking about church life was with this simple conviction. It's almost in a slogan. It's in the bulletin on a weekly basis. We haven't talked about it for a while. And it is this simple conviction that God changes our lives in the context of vital relationships. Okay, and that just being a, a kind of a baseline that God is always working in the context of relationships to move us from where we are to where he wants us to be so that we are a people who are always in process. Okay, we're never done. We, we got to constantly come back and review these truths that are central to who we are as the body of Christ. And that's my desire this morning is that we would have time to talk about relationships and ask this question, are relationships in my Christian experience a vital part of my life? Okay, are they a vital part of my life? When I say vital, here's what I mean. I mean, are they essential, life-giving, and necessary? Okay, are they essential? Are they life-giving and life-supporting? Are they necessary? Do I see them as something that I may or may not have in my life? Or do I see it as part of what it is to be a Christian? And I would argue this morning, uh, from the broad picture of Scripture, that the Bible paints a picture of the church as a group of people who are vitally connected to each other, who find a necessity in that relationship with each other as we live in this earth for the glory of God. The other thing I want to say is this, because I, when I think about various aspects of Christian living, particularly the aspect of relationships, I think for some people, they feel it's personality driven, okay? They're introverts and they're extroverts, right? I don't know what people think I am. Sometimes I'm not really sure which side of that I'm on. I know I have no problem walking up to people and talking to them, but there are times in my life where I really like quiet and withdrawn, and I, I naturally go there for rest. I'm energized being with people, and so I'm not quite sure where I fit, which probably doesn't surprise you, okay? But for many people, I think they look at it and say, you know what? Look, here's an easy out. If you're an introvert, 
You don't have to have vital relationships. And quite frankly, it's a lot easier to live without them. Right? Because you prefer that kind of that private track in life. And then you look at other people in the church and you say, well, they're, they're more extroverted in their personality. And I understand why they need those kinds of things. And the assumption is what? I don't. Okay, so this morning, I'm not going to let you off the hook, okay, and say, uh, you know, it's, it's really based on personality. It's not. There are things that Tim Hoff needs that I don't naturally gravitate towards. My wife thinks I need kale. Okay? When you put kale in a salad and swallow it, it hurts. Okay? For some reason, God, in his wisdom, has caused our kale plants in our garden to be, like, unbelievable. Okay? I think these things are going to be perennial as opposed to annual. Okay? I'm living in fear. And it's hard to kill this stuff. But I got something called Roundup, okay? And I'm <laughs> spraying weeds around the garden. Oops. <laughs> like I, I don't know. My wife is convinced that there are certain things that I need to eat. I have my preferences when it comes to eating, but there are things that I need that are important to living a healthy life. And I resist those kind of things. In the realm of eating, I resist those kind of things. I'd rather eat the stuff that I like, whether it's good for me or not. But it is necessary that I mix it up and eat things that are, are good. And it's wise for me to do that. In the context of your Christian experience, I, I, I issue you this kind of challenge. It's a baseline conviction. Vital relationships are essential to a healthy church. Vital relationships are essential to our witness in our community. They're essential to our growth in becoming everything that God wants us to be. And so from the text that we're looking at, I, my, my aim is to kind of cultivate within your heart or reignite within your heart a conviction about the importance of life together. That we are, as Rick Warren has said, we are better together than we are when we're alone. And that's by design. We all, in the wisdom of God, make a contribution and we're together as Christians. We all bring something to the table that it's helpful and beneficial. And when that is withheld, when I don't participate in vital relationships, there's some gift, some aspect of the Spirit's work in my life that is not being experienced in, for, for the benefit of others within the body of Christ. And we need to gain a conviction that it can't be that way, that it's not right for me to take my talent, my gift, my special way that God made me and stick it in a napkin and tuck it in the ground. It's not an option. Somebody needs the benefit of that. And God, in his wisdom, will work out how I get to that location, how I get into that relationship. I just need to begin to make myself available and see what God begins to do. My aim this morning is not to rebuke or to make you feel guilty. Oh, I really should do more. No one's ever changed by that. Okay, so my desire this morning is to exhort you. It is to encourage you, to challenge you to think just from a simple text that hopefully, I, I've memorized it, not trying to, I just have pondered on this verse for the last couple months and thought, what would it be like if as a church we gained the conviction of John, the writer of this book, and began to live out this very simple value that he communicates in a, in a fascinating way in this text. We start with the conviction that at the time of salvation, you were birthed by God into a new environment. You became part of something that is glorious. It's called the church. It's called the body of Christ. It's called the bride of Christ. 
God, when you got saved, brought you into a new family. He made you part of a new group of people who has certain ambitions, goals, and purposes by the design of the one who is bringing it together for his glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul gives this stunning and sobering summary of what we are. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says this to the church in Corinth, a church that struggled with all kinds of stuff, messes, difficulties, sin, immorality. It was rampant in the church at Corinth. And it is to that group of people that Paul says this. He says, you, plural, are the body of Christ. You are his physical representation on this planet. You are the means by which his love is known to the world in which you live. You are the body of Christ. Now, folks, here's what I want you to understand. No individual is the body of Christ. But when Christians gather together and commit together in the context of a local church, they are Jesus for their community. That is an unbelievable responsibility, and it is a mind-blowing privilege. If people are going to see Christ, how will they see him? What will he look like? The truth is, they'll see him in us as we live out our convictions, our godly convictions, as we live out our life together before a world that we know, we all know this, desperately needs to know Jesus. But until we make a commitment to be that body together, until we get there, we give a weak and anemic Jesus to the world around us. And God wants us to give a powerful Jesus to those around us. A Jesus in which we are bound together by his blood. We are forgiven. We are reborn into a new family. And we have a different life, a different disposition, a different way of looking at things. We are the body of Christ. And then Paul says we are members of that body in particular. Which simply means this. We're part of something bigger. And being part of that something bigger comes down to my daily life and my daily interactions. So we're strengthened together, and then we go forth from this place to live this life for His glory to make an impact on a world that we all know desperately needs the truth. So let's look at this book very quickly this morning. John writes in verse 1, he says, The elder, probably speaking of his position as a leader within the church, also may be a reflection on his age. To the chosen lady, which... We don't know exactly, but probably a lady who held a prominent position in the context of this body and her children, whom I love in the truth. And some will also look at this text and see it as the church being the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, which has many children. Okay? Just a beautiful, beautiful picture. To the chosen lady and her children who I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. So this knowing the truth about Christ drives community. It drives unity. It informs that unity. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and in love. Verse 4. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, 
but one which we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Okay, so what's the first thing that John lays out? John lays out a very basic conviction that is profoundly familiar in the pages of Scripture. You will remember, you may even hear as you read this, the echoes of the words of Christ. What is the greatest commandment? Love one another and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, have a selfless disposition towards God for his glory and towards each other for service. Have that kind of a disposition. So the simple basis of this conviction that God changes lives in the context of vital relationships is, is, is based upon this idea that we live on two planes in our Christian life. All right? One is that we live on a vertical level with God. You cannot experience true and lasting change apart from this relationship. But when this relationship packed, or when this relationship impacts you, it will affect all of your relationships on this plane. Okay, so don't take what I'm saying as moralistic today. If you have never trusted Christ, I want to encourage you to flee into the arms of the Savior who lived the life you couldn't live, died the death that you should have died, and trust Him and own Him as your Lord and Savior. When you do that, He will bring you into this relationship with this Father who will pour the Spirit of God into your life with the aim of transforming you and people around you. So that this text calls us to I mean, John's making an assumption. He's going to come to the gospel in the next section. That Jesus is the center here of what we are about. But, but the, 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 the core nature of the relationship is this love that is selfless. It is, it is deferring. It is giving. It is interested in the life, benefit, and progress of others. Here's what's fascinating. When you read about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, Here's what the text says. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. It is first because it is prominent. It is first because it falls over all the other virtues that flow from the work of the Spirit. He comes to make you a non-selfish person and he aims to make you a selfless person who loves others sacrificially. He comes to change you. He comes to free you from the bondage of I, me, and mine. Right? The thing that every parent... Raising a little infant, you just find it so aggravating. You want to drive it out, right? And when it, when it starts to affect their relationship with each other, you just... Right, you want that gone. The Spirit of God comes to do this, to drive out that kind of selfish thinking and to make you open and loving towards people around you. It gives you a concern. So the basis of this conviction is that we are called as Christians to love each other. That's the great commandment in a nutshell. It is the essence of the ethic of the body of Christ. We are to be loving people. But I want you to notice that in this text, what does John keep tying together? He keeps tying together love and truth so that we are never loving to the degree that we compromise truth. Or tolerate sin. A parent who tolerates rebellious behavior in their child and refuses to confront it, calling it love, does not love their child. It's true in the body of Christ. The basis of our conviction is that we love in the context of truth. That there are things that a loving person is going to say to someone else, it's not appropriate. It's not acceptable. It demeans our witness as the body of Christ. And it matters to us so that our love is not 
All you need is love, love. Because it's not all you need, folks. A godly parent understands that there is an unbelievable balance that you have to live between love and truth. And every Christian who is striving in Scripture knows that you wrestle with this balance of what it is to love a struggling person and also to challenge them with the truth of God's Word so that we can be the body of Christ. All of that has to be done in the context of relationships. Otherwise, you're flying into people's lives as a judge, and that's how you appear, and it's how it feels. Because you want to correct people without relationship. This loving relationship, this correction, this drawing near to each other and encouraging each other happens in the context by God's design of love and truth. So foundational to this is that we've been called to love and that's why relationships should matter to us. That kind of deep love can only be experienced where there is relationship. Verses 7 through 11 then go into a very straightforward truth. It says, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh have gone into the world. Folks, I want to say that is true in our day. There are many in our day in the context of the church who do not proclaim Jesus Christ as come in the flesh. And it's important for us to know that. This idea of Jesus coming in the flesh has everything to do with what? It has everything to do with the essence of the gospel. In his flesh, Jesus Christ hung on a cross to bear the price for my sin. In his flesh, he lived that perfect life. He provided that righteousness that I desperately need. This idea of Christ coming in the flesh is a vital part of our understanding of Christian living. Okay? It is also as we observe the life of Jesus that we learn how to live in vital relationships with each other. And so John makes it a very central point that this thought, this truth, this proclamation that Christ has come in the flesh is very important. And he says any such person who ignores or denies that is a deceiver and an antichrist, meaning this, they are raising up false substitutes for Jesus. And those false substitutes are necessarily anti-Christ. They stand against the truth of the one who loves you enough to change you completely. So at the heart of this relationship, John then says in verse 8, watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teachings of this Christ who came in the flesh does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching about Christ and his life, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes that person, that deceiver, welcomes his and shares in his wicked work. Which all of a sudden says what? Well, it says that there are those that have Christ and those that don't have Christ. There are those that proclaim Christ and seek to build on him and those that don't. The church essentially, necessarily, places its focus centrally on Jesus. All right, we have this conviction based on the command, love one another and love God with all your heart. Love Jesus. Proclaim Jesus is the one who came in flesh to pay the price for your sin and to show you how to live the life you could never live. He came for that purpose and, and, and did that so that we would be changed. And in his cross work, he brings us into this new relationship called the body of Christ where we are bound together in this glorious and beautiful 
picture and representation of Jesus. Now, verse 12 then, John makes an admission. This is where I want you to focus your attention for a few moments. John says, I have much to write to you. But I do not want to use paper and ink. Now, can I just ask you to just think about that for a second? What has John written? John's written the book of Revelation. John's written the gospel of John. John's written 1 John. John's going to write 3 John. And he's writing 2 John. I think John knows how to write. I think John seems to be a pretty effective communicator with his pen. Why? Why would John suddenly say, I have many things to write, but I will not do it with paper and pen? It's like, well, you've done enough already. You keep going. If I think about it correctly, I think Luke and Paul write the majority of the New Testament. John, I think, stands third in the line of percentage of writing. What is John saying? Here's what John's saying. John's saying, a text won't do, a tweet won't do, an Instagram won't do, an email won't do, a handwritten letter won't do. Why? Why can't I just get the sermons on CD and listen to them in private and be an obedient Christian? Why can't I do that? Okay, and it, John is hinting at it here very, very clearly. Because I could write to you on, on paper with a pen. I could do that. But then John says this. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you, listen, face to face. Right? The, the, and as I was going through this immense Bible study, the question was, why? Why did that matter to John? Here's why. Because truth disassociated from relationships lacks a message. As love without truth, right? You understand this? Love without truth doesn't have anything to communicate to people. And what John is saying is, I want to come and I want to be with you and communicate with you face to face because in the context of that relationship, God desires to do something glorious. So the expressed value and desire for relationships to live the Christian life together emerges in a very fascinating way in this text. And then John makes this observation. He gives the so that. Because what is he doing? He's going to give the reason for why this coming and meeting with you face to face matters. He says, I want to come and talk with you face to face so that not my joy and not your joy, but so that our joy may be made complete. Now, what does he mean by that? Okay, and I think that there's something at the essence of this is that as we come together and share, which is the word for fellowship, share our common affections for our Savior, something glorious happens that can't happen on pen and paper. It's about the relationships. And it's about how we together in the vitality of that with the Spirit of God present begin to impact each other. Maybe you've had the frustration of encountering something glorious, particularly something visual that's glorious, and you're alone. It is like one of the most 
frustrating things. As we were going to the, uh, the father-son canoe trip in June, we saw bear on four occasions. Okay? I'm going to tell you something. It's, and it's just interesting. Nobody just was like to themselves. Okay, I'm going to talk a lot, but there's a big bear. Whoa, there's a bear. <laughs> right? And th there's this, nobody in the car said, you know what, I'm looking at a bear. I really should tell everybody else in the car, there's a bear here. There's something about, oh, I wish we'd been there to see this. Right? Because we're wired that way. God has made us that way to see glorious and share glorious. And so, when you are doing it together, it, it becomes awesome. Okay, it's why if your child is having a child and you're going to be a grandparent and you're nearby, it, they don't say, to you, hey, you know what, don't bother coming. We'll be home in four days. Why? Because something like that in terms of enjoyment and blessing is heightened in the context of community. That's why it matters that we get together. It's why it matters that we come on Sunday mornings and share in corporate worship by God's design. He says, sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make melody in your hearts to the Lord together. Why? Because God just likes hearing you. No. Make melody in your hearts together to the Lord. Come together. And when you do that, folks, listen. I experienced that this morning just... There is a heightened joy and appreciation. I didn't learn anything new as we sung this morning. Like I wasn't like, oh, I never thought of that. But when you sing together, what happens? God uses that togetherness. He built you for relationships. He didn't build you, build you to live in isolation. He made Adam and Eve, and he came and walked with them in the cool of the day. It's what he wants with you, fellowship. And it's what he wants you on this level to experience, and then it flows out into this level. And it is the glory of the Christian life. Because we have something that we celebrate that is greater than did the Eagles win last week or not. <laughs> I, I honestly, I, I don't even know if they did, okay? Just to be honest, I don't know. But I can tell you something, folks. We have something so much more glorious, so much more permanent, so much more sustainable. And God wants us to share that together in the body of Christ. He wants us to be vitally connected in sharing this life. So that when we see something good from God's word, we see something good in our lives, we have people we can share it with. I, I just, I was stunned that John would say it this way. A mutual blessing comes. Our joy is made complete. Uh, I remember when our, our first child was born. Maybe you've gone through this where you, you experience that joy together and almost pass out, which is what happened to me. <laughs> Smelling salts. You okay? I'm fine. Why are you white? Where are your lips? I don't know. <laughs> they were gone. You couldn't see them. The guy looked at me and saw it. He, maybe you've had this, this experience. You have that joy, and it's tearful, and it's mind-blowing. Then you get your act together, and you're like, I'm good. I'm good. Now call your mom and tell her what happens in the sharing. And you've had this in difficulty. You've had this in joy. 
You get a difficult phone call you got to make. And when you get on the line and you're talking, what happens? You begin to experience something that comes out of the together. And all of a sudden you're like, man, I thought I got over that. I thought it was okay. And you start to share it. And those emotions affected by togetherness in the context of human relationships, they're heightened. There's joy. And the same thing will happen as we take communion today. As we share in that enjoyment together, God comes near. Here's what he says. And this is the conviction that it rests on. God says to us, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there. I am there in a way that I am not there in other circumstances. You say, Tim, well, what exactly? Explain that. I can't, no. I'm not going to try. I can't explain it. I just know it's true. That when you enjoy life together, when you share your Christian experience together, when you share Jesus together and proclaim his death till he comes in the elements of the table, as Paul says, something different happens by the Spirit. There is a way in which you become one as the body of Christ and you make a proclamation together. And you know the experience if you know Christ. The Spirit of God comes alongside and affirms what John's talking about. And then you read the verse later and you know like, you say to yourself, John's right. John says, I could write this. I could, I could put all this truth on paper and pen, but I'm going to wait so I can come to you. And when I come to you, our joy will become complete. So here's the question. As a Christian, are you experiencing this sense of complete joy? Because as a Christian life, it's okay. It's okay. It's not... I mean, John's saying your joy, your, this, it'll be an emotional, filling experience. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. What's next? Joy. John builds this book on the experience of the Spirit in relationship to truth about Jesus that was being compromised. And John's like, don't let it be compromised. Hold that as central. That is the center of what you are as the body of Christ. Glory. And when I come and see you face to face, John is saying, I want to share that with you so that our joy will be complete. What is John saying? John's saying, I'm not okay without you. That's what he's saying. I'm not okay without you. I am not okay in isolation. And so, folks, here's the practical challenge that emerges. I grew up with a basic conviction about church life that it mattered. Did I ever do it religiously? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are times I just did it because I should do it. But I, it was being regular, being faithful in the body of Christ. Was, look, when we're full like this, does, do things feel different to you? Honestly. Yes. So why would we sacrifice that for lesser things? And we do, right? But when we're together and we sing together and we fellowship together and we see each other, there is, there is an undeniable sense in which joy heightens. Because when we gather, God is in the midst. Okay, and so one challenge I give to you is value that broader expression of life together. But I can't stop there. Because you can come on Sunday morning and be totally disconnected. Some of us are. 
Okay, and I tell you this morning, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to realize that if you plug more into what God is doing in your church family, you will experience a higher degree of joy by the Spirit. Because that's God's design. I envision, and I, and I think about this, I think about, I mean, and now our kids are out of the house. But when my kids were younger, I thought, would, not, would it not be an awesome thing to raise your kids in a context where they believe that relationships with other Christians are important because they were to my parents? Those kind of thoughts that run through my mind as I ponder as a pastor and sharing. I'd love to, love to have my kids grow up in a church environment where they loved being together and loved what the Spirit was doing when they were together as they sung and shared and enjoyed life together so much that they would realize that is necessary. I want that in my life. I don't know if I succeeded in that with my wife, with our kids. I don't know. But it's something that I always thought. I just, I wanted to go out of here believing that when I get to college, I need Christian friends. I need a Christian fellowship. I don't want to take a detour from church for four years because what happens is kids lose their joy and they lose their faith. So you get in a place where you can experience vitality in your walk with each other, in your walk with God together. A few months ago, I heard an illustration. I was listening to a sermon called Singing. I haven't preached that sermon yet. But the guy was talking about barbershop quartets. And all I could think about was funny clothes, okay? <laughs> like, it's hard to look at them, let alone listen, you know? But the listening, I understand this tight harmonies. I, I like that. I'm not a musician, but, and I don't understand it, okay? I read up on it a bit recently. But, but the pastor was using the illustration because in, in barbershop quartets, when they sing, it's a very tight package of harmonies, the lead singer and then harmonies. You know, if I recall correctly, a lead singer, a tenor, a baritone, and a bass, okay? And there are times where they talk about something that is called a ringing chord, okay, a ringing chord. And it is a name that is specific and well-defined as an acoustical effect, also referred to as an expanded sound, the angel's voice, or the fifth voice, the overtone. Okay? So you're listening to four, and you hear a fifth. A fifth, not a fifth, but you hear a fifth. Okay? He says, what is prized is not so much the overtone itself. This is from Wikipedia, by the way a sound source of information. <laughs> what is prized is not so much the overtone itself, but a unique sound whose achievement is most easily recognized by the presence of the overtone, the precise synchrony of the waveform of the four voices simultaneously creates the perception of a fifth voice. Like, and I've heard that. That it's like, whoa. When it's all together, all of those parts making one chord, one sound. While at the same time, melding the four voices into a unified sound, the ringing chord is qualitatively different in sound from an ordinary musical chord. Example, as sounded on a tempered scale keyboard or instruments. Now, what is he saying? In the realm of that togetherness in singing, 
something unique happens that could not happen in isolation. Something valuable, something enjoyable, something sought after. Folks, that's what God, by the Spirit, wants to do with the church. He wants us to be His voice. Do you see? This is what John's saying. We come together so that our joy will become complete, so that there will be an overtone, a ringing, a fifth voice, a proclamation that God is great, God's love is incredible, and that a watching world sees that and says, I'm curious. That's why he says it in 1 Peter, right? Many will see it and trust in the Lord. May God help us as a church family to recapture this idea of vital relationships. In our setting, it happens in various ways. Okay, it happens informally. People are friends and they talk and they share life together. It's not, inform- it's not formal. It doesn't show up in the church bulletin, but it happens. I, had, I, I talked to three people this week who said to me, I am so thankful that God brought so-and-so into my life. And it kept blowing me away. Why? This is what I was studying this week and thinking about this week. Talking into my phone as I was taking notes. And I said, yeah, you know what? It's just, I had another friend I met that I've, I've had breakfast with him four times. And I, he said to me, he said, you know, if it wasn't for Jesus, like, we wouldn't even know each other or care about each other. <laughs> it's all we have. Our lives are different. We live in different states, different places, just separate lives. We come together once in a while because of Christ. And he just made that observation sitting there. I said, you're right, Jack. You're right. This ringing tone, this overtone, this fifth voice. Our Sunday schools are de- designed to give you time together to learn. That's why we do it. And please, I encourage you, come. Wouldn't it be great if we had to start another class? Right? Small groups, men's studies. These are formal things. They're announced. Okay? Go. I, I love my Tuesday night's men's study. I adjust my schedule on Tuesdays pretty regularly so I can be there. Meaning I'm normally there, but I'll make adjustments so that I can make sure I'm there. I love what God's doing in that group. And I, I just, I want to encourage you to think about how important God makes these relationships. Empowered by the Spirit, so that we can be everything He wants us to be. You are the body of Christ. You're Jesus to the world around you. And as, as we come to the, to, to the communion table this morning, I just say this. What is it that binds us together? It's what my friend said to me this week. He says, Tim, if it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't have a relationship. Jesus is what binds us together. Folks, that is the truth for us as the church. And we, in the Lord's table, proclaim together that he, he allowed his body that he came in the flesh to be broken for the benefit of Tim Hoff. He shed his blood to wipe away the sin of Tim Hoff. He lived that perfect life so that I can enjoy his righteousness and own it as my own, given as a free gift to change me. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, this is a celebration for those that have trusted Christ. If you haven't trusted Christ, let it pass. Right? We, we want you to feel no obligation that you need to go and participate in this. This is a time for those that have trusted Jesus to remember and to proclaim, I love Jesus, I am trusting in his shed blood. That's the purpose and focus of the Lord's table, to proclaim his death. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, I give you this encouragement. What we are proclaiming through the elements of the Lord's table are free and available for you. 
He suffered for your sin. He shed his blood so that you could be cleansed from it after living the life that you couldn't live. He wants to credit you with his righteousness when you turn to him, repent, and confess your sin and trust in him. He wants to change your life. And he wants to bring you in to a new body where you can be part of a fifth voice. Because the church is his voice to the world proclaiming Jesus. Let's pray together. Father.